Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I am the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series focused on school reopening in the law. We have also completed a comprehensive series addressing major New Jersey and U.S. Supreme Court decisions, and we are planning future comprehensive series addressing other key aspects of school law, including mental health in the law, equity in the law, special education, and other key aspects of school law. Today's episode is focused on addressing employee vaccination, access to health information, and other emerging human resource issues related to the pandemic and the reopening of schools. We're very happy to have with us today two guests, Robert Schwartz, who is Chief Legal Counsel for the New Jersey Principals and Supervisors Association. And we're also excited to have with us Rebecca Gold. Rebecca served for many years as a Director of Human Resources and now is a consultant for us at Legal One. We're excited to be offering our Legal One podcast in partnership with New Jersey PTA. For more information on New Jersey PTA, we encourage you to visit their website at www.njpta.org. So let's turn back the clock to 1905. We had communities across the country struggling with an outbreak of smallpox, trying to keep their citizens safe, trying to find ways to limit and stop the spread of this highly contagious disease. And in Massachusetts, a number of municipalities decided that in order to control and stop the spread of smallpox, there had to be a vaccination requirement put into place. So at that time, municipalities put in place requirements for smallpox vaccination. We had many citizens who were very upset at the notion that there would be a government mandate to be vaccinated. And we had citizens in Massachusetts who challenged this new requirement. Ultimately, the issue made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court did rule that during a health emergency, and certainly a large widespread outbreak of smallpox was considered a national health emergency, during such an emergency, local governments did have the right to put in place vaccination requirements. So we have heard this phrase before, but certainly history does repeat itself. And here we are working through a global pandemic, and here we are with a national conversation about whether or not we need to put in place employee vaccination requirements. And employers across the nation are struggling with the question of whether or not to mandate vaccination of employees. And that's all types of employers, private companies, 
government agencies, and of course, school districts are also looking into this issue. So we're going to focus on this question today and analyze the legal ramifications of mandating employee vaccination. So today's podcast is focused on issues of employee vaccination. We have had states enact various vaccination requirements. In 2020, the state of New Jersey, for example, put in place a vaccination requirement for healthcare workers in order to receive the flu vaccine. We also have guidance from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, very specific to issues of COVID and the rights of employers to mandate vaccination for employees um, in order to deal with the COVID uh, outbreak. Um, And the EEOC has, in their guidance, indicated that under appropriate circumstances, employers uh, would be able to mandate vaccination. But we're going to walk through those circumstances because there is some nuance that we have to consider on these issues. So as we're beginning this conversation, uh, Rebecca, let me just ask you to talk about the sensitivity of um, dealing with these issues, the heightened emotions that we're all dealing with, um, and how important it is for an employer, including, of course, a school district, to be very sensitive as we have conversations about something like vaccination. The depth of feelings on these topics is just unbelievable. There are people who strongly feel one way and there are people who don't agree. And there's a lot of forces affecting their thinking. There's the media, there's the newspapers, there's friends. In the schools, we have to be very careful that there's no shaming of people. If somebody cannot get a vaccination, we can't have them, A, being labeled or singled out don't go near this person, she's not vaccinated. Or that possibly that information would get out to the community and parents might be upset. Those are great points, Rebecca. So uh, let me just ask Bob Schwartz if you can build on that and talk about the precedent that we do have that goes back more than a century, uh, the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case and um, the precedent that we have had over the past century regarding uh, the employer's right to require vaccination. Um, can you talk about uh, when an employer would have that right and then some of the exceptions that we would have to consider? Let me start with the Jacobson case. Uh, the Jacobson case, as you indicated before, is from 1905. And smallpox at that time was a disease that was prevalent and people had to deal with it. And they came out with a vaccine and um, under the police powers that were given to municipalities by the state, there were municipalities that were requiring people to be vaccinated for smallpox. And Jacobson, I guess, was one of the individuals who decided to challenge the authority of the state to require or to allow municipalities to require vaccination. And when it went up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said that states exercising their rights under the police power have the right to require smallpox vaccines. I I don't think it went beyond smallpox vaccines, but smallpox vaccines for the greater good as, as, Uh, Rebecca just indicated, 
for the health and welfare of the general population, to protect the general population. And that general principle, I think, is held uh, for the last century plus. In the 1950s, with the polio vaccine, schools began requiring students to have the polio vaccine. So there you have another precedent. I'm not sure if there was a challenge to that legally, but there you have another precedent. And governor last year issued an executive order. Actually, it wasn't an executive order. It was a statute that was adopted by the legislature and signed by Governor Murphy that requires healthcare providers to get the flu shot. So the precedent is there for the state to require vac- the state or the subdivisions of the state to require vaccination. Um, and I believe based on everything that I've read, including the EEOC guidelines that came out last year, that local employers, public employers, and private employers can require vaccination. Whether they require it or not is going to be a different decision. It's not, it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be predicated on legal precedent as much as it is on the political environment in which we live. And Rebecca indicated before that employers need to be sensitive. That's a good way to put it. I think they need to be sensitive to how people feel about vaccines, uh, and they need to try to balance that sensitivity and balance that consideration with the greater good. And um, I think the greater good ultimately will win out, but to, to every extent possible, I think between now and when we do reopen schools, and I anticipate based on what the governor has indicated in the last week or so, that schools will, will reopen fully in September. And what we, have to, what we have to balance is the need to maintain safety in a general sense, while at the same time recognizing people's individual rights. And what we have to do, I think, as leaders in a community or leaders in education is to try to persuade as many people as possible to be vaccinated. We have to concentrate on convincing people, incentivizing people to get vaccinated so that we can get to a percentage where we would have herd, herd immunity and we can all, all be protected. My hope is that that will be able to occur. So those are great points, Bob. Um, and certainly we have to think about how to, in a sensitive way, address these issues. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court, even in the 1905 decision, did recognize that for some small number of individuals, there may need to be a medical exemption. So let me uh, ask if you can comment uh, for a moment on the issue of potential medical exemptions. And again, based on the data and informa- information we currently have, that would be a very, very small part of our population. The EOC guidelines that came out about a year ago indicated that while you can require vaccinations, it's, sub, it's subject to a few exceptions. Number one, you have a religious exception. And if there's some religious basis to object to the vaccination, a valid religious basis to object to it, we have to protect those people's rights and we have to recognize that exception. The same thing with a health exception. If you've got some underlying condition um, or some underlying issue, health issue, that would prevent you from uh, being vaccinated, we have to provide accommodations. What EEOC said was that uh, while they believe that 
employers have the right to require their employees to be vaccinated. It's going to be subject to this religious exception that I just mentioned. And it's also going to be subject to uh, the health exception. And to the extent that these people, that people who, who fall into these, these exceptions have a right to say no to the vaccine, uh, to that extent, we have to be able to provide the accommodations necessary uh, for the individuals uh, to remain whole, to be able to go to work, to be able to participate in activities and so on. Uh, so all of this is subject to, to the religious exception and the health exception as well. So Rebecca, one of the uh, issues that often arises is the confusion among employees regarding the issue of accommodation. Um, even if there is a legitimate medical um, or religious objection, an employer does not automatically need to do whatever the employee asks as far as an accommodation. The legal requirement is to, in good faith, engage in an interactive process and look to try to work together to come up with a reasonable accommodation. Can you comment on that issue? Most people realize that getting back to normal does mean getting a vaccine. And that has been the overriding versus the people who are still hesitant. Well, if you want to get back to what we consider normal, then we need to have that herd immunity. We need to have vaccines. And if not, we can make accommodations, but not when you have half a staff that needs accommodations. That just doesn't work well with the numbers. So Bob, if you could comment on that issue, um, as employees are asking for accommodations, as a legal matter, sometimes an employer may be able to say that this would cause an undue hardship in order to give you the accommodation you're requesting. And the EEOC has gone even further and talked about direct threat analysis that you could engage in that potentially an employee who is not vaccinated could pose such a direct threat to others uh, that we're not able to allow that employee in the workplace. Well, there's two things that I think you just posed in that question. Number one, with regard to accommodations, and we've had this discussion in my office, if schools are not gonna be remote next year, if they're not gonna be virtual, if all schools are gonna be uh, fully operational, um, there's a real question in my mind as to whether or not a reasonable accommodation can include people working from home. In the last year, that clearly has been part of the rubric in terms of accommodations that have been provided. Um, but going forward, if schools are open uh, in September, uh, in September, and um, uh, for the rest of the year, uh, people, I, I don't think that accommodation is going to be one of the accommodations that can be provided. We're going to have to provide other accommodations. Now, you know, for instance, if somebody has a bad back and can't climb stairs, the reasonable accommodation would be keep his classes on the first floor to the extent that we can do that or keep his office on the first floor to the extent that we can do that. That's a reasonable accommodation. Uh, for people who are afraid of COVID and afraid of coming into school, if, if their ask is gonna be, we wanna work from home, I don't think that's gonna work in September. It has worked this year to some degree. I don't think that's gonna work in September. You're gonna have to be satisfied with lesser accommodations. And what could those lesser accommodations be? 
we're going to keep you in an office separated from people if we can do that. Or we're going to buy plexiglass and put it around your desk. Uh, how that would work in a classroom, I'm not sure. Uh, if it interferes with, uh, with instruction to the extent that it, it really compromises instruction, I think that would constitute an undue hardship. Uh, and all these issues, I think, are going to come into play come September. Because you're going to have teachers, for example, who are going to say, I don't mind teaching the class, but I want to have a plexiglass around me so that all these kids who are not yet vaccinated don't give me the virus. I'm afraid of getting the virus. So that's, that, that could be a reasonable accommodation. I'm not saying it would be, but it could be. Uh, it depends on the cost. It depends on the hardship that's, that the district is going to realize. The second issue that you, that you raised uh, and I think it's also an issue that Rebecca raised before. If I've got part of my staff, let's say 10%, who's not vaccinated and they're coming into school, I'm not going to keep them out. They're coming into school. Can I require the 10 people or the 10% of the 10% of the employee population to wear masks and not require the rest of the population? to wear masks. I think that would pose a problem because we would be ba basically telegraphing who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated. But I think that's also an issue that school districts are gonna have to grapple with in September, beginning in September, because you're gonna have a certain percentage of staff who are not gonna be vaccinated. So what do you do with them? How do you protect the rest of the staff who have been vaccinated or or how do you protect the staff who, hasn't been, who haven't been vaccinated? It would seem to me that the mask requirement is one way to do it. Social distancing, obviously, is another way to do it. Um, but if you're just going to pinpoint the people who have not been vaccinated, then you're going to create a whole different issue in that you're, you're isolating them, you're making them different, and you're telegraphing to the public that they haven't been vaccinated. So you're gonna to have to be careful about how you do it. I don't have an answer, but I think that's, that's gonna be an issue come September. I do wanna uh, turn to uh, reimagining human resources moving forward. Um, so let me ask you first, Rebecca, um, coming through this pandemic, are there HR policies that school districts should be reassessing now, things that we might want to consider doing differently moving forward? Absolutely. Um, this has been a wonderful experience for us to take the best of what we learned and use it. Um, right now, the first thing that has to be revised are job descriptions. Um, most of our job descriptions in the state, from my colleagues that I've spoken to and from what I know of ours, um, really do not define a school day. And by not defining what a school day in person is, it left the door open. Now, in this case, we needed it to get through, but it did leave the door open for remote teaching and remote learning on the student's behalf. So we have to a, redefine our job descriptions to what a school day looks like and what our parameters are. We also have to redefine our policy about leaves of absences as well as a sick day. Because when remote came into play, suddenly as the lines for a sick day got blurred. 
well, if I can just get myself in front of the computer and teach, I don't have to take a sick day because we're teaching remotely. However, we all know that there are legitimate sick days where people go to the doctors, have procedures done, and there are legitimate leaves of absence where people have babies or medical leaves. And we don't have clear definitions and the line is blurred. So we had people who originally, for instance, took a three-month leave, whether it be for maternity or illness. Once we were on remote, a month into it, they said, you know what? I can't come to work at school, but I can sit at my computer at home and teach. And they could. But we had already hired people to fill in for them. What was the protection for our substitutes, for our long-term subs? What were our protections for continuity of learning? And if the pandemic were to literally get better, which we see now, how do you turn around now and define when you're allowed to teach remote and when you're not? Now, of course, it's good to say, as we were saying, that there is no remote, but this may turn up again at another time. We've learned a lot of good things about remote for the kids who are at home and are on home instruction. All of a sudden, it became so much more personal than somebody coming in the house who may not have that certificate or may not have those grade level contents covered to be able to look and watch the class and learn with your friends. So I don't want to make it sound all like we have to change everything. We learned a lot of things and we have to take those things and push them into our policies so that again, we have continuity of learning with the best person teaching who's certificated and who has what is needed to get that learning done. Bob, as, as we think about revising job descriptions and um, revising the terms and conditions of employment, can you comment a little bit on the important aspects of collective bargaining law that could come into play? And I know for many school leaders, uh, they really have almost been asked to work 24-7 during this pandemic. They have been constantly, um, you know, involved in technology and communicating with others in the district and parents and students. Um, and they've been incredibly dedicated. But at some point, we are talking about a major change in terms and conditions of employment. And there are some obligations that kick in. Well, in, term, in, terms, of C, in terms of collective bargaining, bargaining agreements, we may have to be more specific in terms of what the workday consists of. Um, I know for administrators, for example, there are some districts that say that administrators are there 24 hours a day, that they have to be available not only when schools are open, but when schools are closed as well. And that may very well be, but um, everybody needs a defined workday. Um, and um, I think most bar bargaining agreements don't really provide that, but we may want to provide that, that the workday is from eight to five or whatever the number is. And that's not to mean that people shouldn't be made available after the workday if there's an emergency, but it does mean that you shouldn't have the expectation that people are gonna be uh, as available after schools are closed as they are when schools are open. Uh, so you need to put something in there, I, I think about um, workday activities and the length of the workday, 
uh, in collective bargaining agreements more than we have uh, until now. Um, and I think it also it also means that we should we should beef up the grievance process that we have in collective bargaining agreements, meaning that those bargaining agreements that don't have arbitration provisions, we should put, we should try to get the arbitration provision in there because absent an arbitration provision, there's really no way to get to a finality that's determined by a neutral person. If you don't have the arbitration provision in there, then it's going to be the, the last step's going to be the Board of Education and the Board of Education is as much a party to a given grievance as the grievant. So let me ask Bob um, if, if you have any uh, closing thoughts for us. Uh, Rebecca, those are wonderful insights. Uh, but as we are winding down our conversation, Bob, any final thoughts? Well, first, I want to comment on what Rebecca just said. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. I think you're going you're gonna to see some PTSD. You're going to see some depression. You're going to see a psych psycholo psychological scars, not only uh, with students, but staff alike. And we don't even know what they are just yet because we're coming out of this. And, and most of us are tiptoeing out of this. We're not plunging into the public sphere, so to speak. We're, we're doing it gradually. And our social skills, our, our ability to interact with people, I think has been um, negatively affected because we've been isolated for so long. So I think that's something that we're going to have to overcome. And we shouldn't expect when kids go back into school or when teachers go back into school or administrators that it's like turning on a light switch. It's not going to be that easy. It's going to be a gradual thing and we're going to have to work towards that. Um, and in terms of what we can expect, I think we're heading into the unknown. There are a lot of issues out there who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated. Who do we require to have a mask? Who do we not require to have a mask? Uh, do we still do social distancing? And if we do do social distancing, how do we do it when you have a full contingent of students and a full contingent of staff in the school? Um, what do we do with ventilation? How do we improve ventilation? Do we keep the windows open more than we did before? Does that present security concerns? All those are are issues that we're gonna to have to deal with and we're really heading into the unknown. And I've been saying this for a, over a year, this is gonna take a team approach. Everybody's gotta be in the mix here. Teachers, parents, uh, administrators, everybody's gotta be in the mix and everybody's gotta be pulling in the same direction. Unfortunately, the probability is that that's not always going to happen. Hopefully it happens more often than not, but that's not always going to happen. But I think if there's a cautionary tale to, to provide here, it's that we're heading into the unknown and we've got to be, be prepared for, for unanticipated issues. I want to thank uh, both uh, you, Bob Schwartz, and you, Rebecca Gold, as always, uh, for your wonderful insights. Uh, as we have discussed today, there are so many issues that we have never had to deal with before. We are in uncharted territory. It is critical that all of the key players work together um, because we haven't done this before um, and that we try to remain sensitive to supporting 
our students, our parents, but also all of the staff members who are so dedicated and that we provide a safety net for all of those staff members who, who need support as we are moving back into what we hope will be a full reopening of our schools and a safe reopening of our schools uh, come September. Uh, so again, today's episode is part of a 12-part series addressing school reopening in the law. Uh, for those who would like more information about today's episode or Legal One, we encourage you to go to the Legal One website at www.njpsa.org slash Legal One NJ. And I want to thank you for listening today. Thank you for all that you're doing in our schools. Be safe and be well, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.